This is not one I collected, but it's one I enjoy. Twenty froggies went to school Down beside a little pool Twenty little coats of green Twenty dressed all white and clean We must be in time, said they First we study, then we play That is how we keep the rule When we froggies go to school Master Bullfrog, grave and stern Calls our classes in their turn Taught them one, two, three, four, five How to leap and how to dive we must be in time, said they. First we study, then we play. That is how we keep the rule when we froggies go to school. Thank you. That was awesome. <laughs> this was very nice. Uh, it's when I hum in the shower a lot. Uh, it's from the Ozarks, but uh, I've never heard it sung anywhere else, so it's uh, just one of those weird, cute things. That was folklorist Derek Peters singing. Recently, I met up with Derek at the Burnham Library in Bridgewater, Connecticut, to talk with him about his music and the fieldwork archive he started in 2020 to collect folk song, poetry, and memories. Derek focuses on what he calls non-singers, or someone without a background in musical performance. Later in this interview, Derek tells us the story of meeting one of his informants to record a Hungarian folk song. You can listen to this song before the interview by visiting fieldwork-archive.com forward slash 211.html. I'll also place the link in the show notes. Also, I'd like to recommend visiting Derek's website to learn more about his work at www.derekpeter, that's D-E-R-E-K-P-I-O-T-R.com, or following the link in the show notes. You'll find a varied and exciting body of work that I hope you enjoy. I also hope that you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the Root Cellar. Derek, I'd like to thank you for taking some time to talk to me today. And I'd also like to thank the Burnham Library for hosting us. That was very generous of them. Yeah, their former uh, assistant director, who has now just moved this week to a different library, uh, has been, uh, he runs the Connecticut Crossroads Project, which is uh, sort of like what I do with the Fieldwork Archive, except it's not musical. He generally just has casual conversations uh, with uh, residents of the town, what have you, and so he has his own online repository um, uh, of this Connecticut Crossroads project. So it's it's a very kindred endeavor to what I've been interested in. So he's been pretty supportive. So when you said you wanted to meet, this felt like a good space. Yeah, it is. A, it's a delightful library. If if you're if you're listening and you're ever in um, Litchfield County, Connecticut, you should stop by. Um, I'd like to start off by asking you how you describe your work. <laughs> I usually get someone else to describe it for me. If I'm out at a party with friends, I usually ask them to tell the 
stranger about my work, if someone I've met over a cocktail and they're like, what kind of music is it? And I go, you know, Cassie, you tell them. Because I, uh, <clears throat> I don't really, uh, selfishly, haven't built the vocabulary um, for myself to uh, define what I do. It's, it's, a, it's a perpetual search for some sort of beauty. Uh, but beyond uh, that vague descriptor, there's not really parameter sonically. There's a lot of interface with the human voice. There's a lot of interface with kind of electronic collaging, but maybe not in a techno sort of way or a synthesized sort of way. Uh, I might throw the question back to you. I mean, what do you think? How do you? How would you describe my work? What what sort of mm -hmm. music would you say it is? If someone was, you had to give your elevator pitch. Elevator pitch. Did you see that guy in the wire with the funny shirt? What kind of music is that? Yeah, no, I guess I'd say, say experimental because that's a safe term that you can apply to lots of things. I thought about this because I've read some people talk about a transition in your work from electronic to folk or focus on folk. And at first I kind of took that at face value and was like, okay, I see where they're coming from. But then after listening to um, particularly um, Avia and the making uh, then unmaking and um, also uh, the devil knows how there's electronic elements in all of those still so I didn't really see it as quite the same transition just that you're using technology in a different way it was was my perception of it yeah yeah and I think the other thing is that the folk element has always been there it might have been maybe more smothered in the past but it's just been brought forward so the cocktail is the same I mean um, one of the things that's inspired me lately in a huge way is these WPA recordings made in the 30s by Dr. Herbert Halpert uh, in Elk Park, North Carolina of the Bear family. Uh, Lena Bear, Turby Phil, and her sisters Lloyd Bear Hagee and Sabre Bear Hampton and her dad Frank Bear. And um, the, the very nature of those shellac disc recordings from 1939 is that when the Library of Congress digitized them, they were full of grain I actually think Boomcat referred to one of the compilations of those recordings as putting burial to shame that there was so much texture. So I was always fascinated by this interplay of voice and texture. So I was listening to everything from Paul Lansky to AGF when I was younger, uh, Bjork's Medulla, uh, some Meredith Monk, uh, some Stockhausen cut-up voice experiments when I was in my teens. Uh, I had the luxury of never being in a band. I skipped right into like the kind of John Cage solo composer, artist sort of mode. I didn't have to earn my karma by being in a band. I was always just sort of doing my own music. But it was a lot of cut-up voice and grain. So working with these historical recordings that's also voice and grain, and sometimes the disc slips and it is cut up unintentionally, it, it doesn't feel really any different than... Uh, the ways I was thinking about music 15 years ago, it, it feels like a full circle moment. Um, <clears throat> so uh, certainly um, in those old recordings, uh, the technology is obviously present. There's, there's not really a, you don't have the option for it not to be uh, because of how degraded the material is. Uh, so uh, when I was making The Devil Knows How, I wanted to um, pay homage to uh, well, I wanted the album to feel like a repository of field recordings from the 30s all the way to the 70s or something. So we applied different tape treatments to each track. Um, one was like a, cassar, a, a, a car cassette deck, and one was like a reel-to-reel, -reel, and one was like a wire recorder. 
because I wanted to give this this sense that it wasn't a studio album made in nine months, but it was more like a, a collection of recordings plucked from that's from 37, that's from 52, that's from 71. I mean, obviously, without tipping into pastiche and, you know, cranking the Victrola with a handlebar mustache on or something, but but still give it this flavor of uh, the technology is is interacting with the fidelity of the recordings through time. Mm-hmm. So was that a, a was that only an ex- a, a, excuse me was that only an aesthetic choice, or was there some play there or some comment about memory or time that you're you're trying to make as well? Um, I think the record I did before that, the making and then unmaking one that you mentioned, was was a pretty uh, studio pristine. I mean, it was like the nicest fidelity I could get. And so I was just sort of interested in doing the opposite. I think it was not even an aesthetic choice. It was like a mood choice. It was, uh, I'd been listening to all of these repositories online, the Max Hunter collection and the Mary Celestia Parlor collection, and, um, and was, was really um, tickled by the fact that, that as you moved through time, the fidelity changed dramatically. And I thought that that would just be a really neat way um, to delineate some sort of change within what was otherwise a pretty homogenous guitar and voice record. And, and I was also terrified that I was repeating myself. Uh, I think making and then unmaking and the devil knows how are pretty kindred in their sonic palette. Other people have not seen it that way. So I'm, I'm blessed in that regard. Um, but I think part of the desire to dunk these recordings in um, Scott Salter's sort of black magic was because I was like, well, I did the guitar and voice thing, and it was very pristine. Now I'm going to do it again, and it probably shouldn't be pristine. It should. I should do something else. So I think it was that I was trying to trick myself out of repeating myself. That's interesting. I'd like to go back to that or that WPA recording that you mentioned. How did you come upon that? Hmm. Well, uh, I've always loved folk music, uh, and I, I studied ethnomusicology, so a lot of my early preoccupations with sound were Thai, Indonesian, African music, uh, the Akapigmi people, and gamelan, and uh, Sumatran drumming, and all this kind of stuff. Um, but sort of slowly, I was getting more into like Peggy Seeger and Shirley Collins, and then Gene Ritchie, and then on and on and on. And it kind of it ended up that I was downloading a lot of Appalachian music. Uh, taken in the field uh, from the Library of Congress and there was this one singer on one of the Library of Congress compilations called Lena Turbifill and uh, I mentioned her name before and and there was only one entry published at that point by the Library of Congress of her singing in 1939 and textually I thought the songs she was singing were interesting and kind of gory and strange but I also think that she's got one of the, the most amazing voices I'd ever heard. Um, and I was, I was sort of confused by the fact that um, someone like Texas Gladden had gotten such a wide exposure. Um, her voice doesn't necessarily do that much for me. And then this killer singer, Lena, was sort of like unpublished. So um, I sought uh, to publish these WPA recordings because I found out that aside from the one that was out in the world 
there were like four dozen other of, of the whole family. And so um, had made a plan uh, with the Library of Congress that they, they were going to be digitized and sent to me so I could curate uh, the best of the best and put them out somehow. Um, and then COVID happened, which was a blessing in a way because uh, it allowed me to sit at home and, and crave these recordings and I couldn't have them. Everything shut down. Uh, and so I had to do more home research on, on Lena and, and who this woman was. And I ended up uh, getting in touch with her family. And I don't know if I would have gotten in touch with her family as quickly if it hadn't been for COVID. And the bond that I formed with her living descendants is really uh, at the heart of uh, the Fieldwork Archive and um, a lot of the memory work that I've, I've been passionate about doing um, uh, for the last three or four years. That's interesting. I do want to talk about this memory work and Fieldwork Archive, but before we go on, what was it about Lena's voice that you liked? <clears throat> I always say that she's 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 like nudging you in the ribs, winking, telling you a joke, and you're kind of giggling, but you don't know what the joke actually was. She had this sort of sly mischief to her, um, and uh, she had a hard life. I found this out later, but uh, everyone I've talked to, she hit the bottom many times in her life, but uh, always had sort of deep pockets of joy. Like she could always, she was always singing and dancing and laughing. And um, my grandmother, who I was pretty close to. Uh, I don't think that my grandma necessarily had as hard a life, although I can't speculate because I never got to meet Lena. Um, but my grandma had a similar kind of goofy joviality to her, despite having a pretty difficult childhood and a lot of sort of hindrances uh, along her life. She was always uh, pretty jovial. And I, I've always appreciated people like that because... Uh, you know, life is, is often trying and terrifying, but, you know, what are you going to do about it? You might as well have a laugh. So um, I heard that uh, in Lena's spirit, and um, I also heard something, you know, pretty pretty magnificently dark about her. There's a, there's a dark power to uh, her, and uh, later found out that she was a community faith healer and could cure burns by praying over them and, and these kinds of fantastical things. So it sort of lined up with, you know, my, my first impression of what hit me when I heard her voice, you know, and for whatever reason, this, this lovely little Baptist family in Avery County, North Carolina named her Mary Magdalena Bear Turpy Phil. So, I mean, it's a pretty strange name to give a, a child. So I think that probably the whole family had, had a system of beliefs that probably reached beyond the, uh, the typical, uh, Christian Appalachian household. Mm. I think there was something a little more going on with the bears. Mm. Did you get a chance to explore those beliefs or do you know any more about that? <clears throat> I mean, I, I did hear the story about her hearing a healing, healing a burn. Um, and I know she did a lot of uh, wild crafting from the time I spent with her last living daughter who has since passed away. But um, yeah, I got a sense of, uh, of re reciprocity with the land and uh, natural remedies and, um, yeah, just more of a more of a pagan worldview than a Christian one per se. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's 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 strange to trace uh, Lena's kind of livelihood through Elk Park because I was living in Elk Park for four months this year and tried to feel feel Lena through her descendants and uh, yeah, she uh, 
at the very, very least was a character, you know, at the very most had some, some special powers. And the answer might be somewhere in between both of those. When you um, were encountering folk music through uh, the Library of Congress, did you have a um, relationship with music with your grandmother? She never sang that I can remember. Uh, and um, my dad does remember her singing, but isn't sure what. Probably the stuff everybody sings, like, you know, You Are My Sunshine or Rockabye Baby or something kind of benign. But um, no, it was my grandma was more um, emotionally inspiring than, than sonically. I mean, she did love to dance. She would go to dances in all the way into her late 90s. She was at dances late at night and um, loved music, but never sang. Um, more, she was like a, a partner in crime kind of thing. Like she was um, just very spry and, and, and goofy and mischievous and generous and, um, you know, uh, quick-witted and, uh, you know, wasn't just at home knitting. She was kind of, you know, sometimes I'd want to see her and she had too many plans for me. You know, I mean, she was just very like, like, yeah, with it in a, in a way that was really life affirming. So, um, just spending time with her was sort of like my favorite sort of thing to do, even though we never really, um, directly had a musical shared experience. I, I would bring over like DVDs of, I don't know, Incubus live at Red Rocks or Bjork live at Cambridge and she'd watch them and she liked them, you know, so she oh, was cool. open-minded too. And, um, when, one year my cousin was in China doing missionary work or something or translation work or I don't remember why he was in China, but anyway, he, he piped through on Skype. And so we had our laptop in the living room for Christmas and my grandma was there and I, I tried to explain to her Chris was in China. And so, and she was like, Oh, is it, is it Skype or something? I'll say hi. And I was like, how do you know what Skype is? So she, she was really up on it. And, and, um, yeah, I don't know. She was just, she was just like a good person to be around, I guess, you know, yeah, wasn't directly musical, but was just, was just cool. You did a lot of recordings of her, if, I, if I'm remembering. Yeah, I mean, I didn't necessarily do a lot volume-wise, but over... So, I'd, I'd first recorded her when she was 89, and I was 17 or 18. And I thought, God, she's 89, you know, she's not going to be around forever. And it was like a very incidental recording on my mobile phone. Um and then she lived to be 99. So I have 10 years worth of like kind of incidental um, recordings of her. Uh, and, and I literally would just think of it now and then and turn my iPhone on, voice memo and leave it on the coffee table for a few minutes and turn it off, you know, and, and you get some jokes or conversation or, you know, I have a four minute one. And I just put my headphones on and it's you can hear the China chinking and the biscuits being opened and you just like it's like having tea with her again so it's really really nice to have these um things you know i have people who uh have also experienced loss and um they're like oh you know i had a voicemail from my dad but you know when my phone updated i lost it i wish i had more and, and yeah it's that i wish i had more thing i think that i was aware of uh knowing i would be saying now today uh, so I tried to, to exercise my right to hold on to more of her than most people inevitably do. Yeah. How did she, did she, she knew you were recording her, I'm guessing. No. Oh, she didn't. No, it was okay. clandestine. I think she would have, um, 
well, you know, the, the person that knows they're being observed behaves differently. So these were really just um, for me, uh, and I didn't plan on doing anything with them. Uh, and then when she passed away, um, I took five voicemails of her and made a, a string arrangement around them. And um, that felt less intrusive because they were voicemails. I mean, she knew, you know, the act of leaving a voicemail, you know, you're recording something. Uh, so that felt less whatever. And then, uh, when I wrote the album in her memory, it, it was like, I couldn't make anything else in the moment. I just had to pay homage to her when she passed away. Like I, I couldn't go like write a, an emo jazz record or, or anything, you know, I had to, make this music so um i did go through the recordings and i put them like top to bottom you know chronologically or whatever kind of for my own personal mourning i sorted the metadata made sure they were all in chronological order and there were a few recordings of her that were not voicemails that ended up on the record and honestly you probably can't even tell what she's saying as an outsider listener like if you put put the record on it's probably the fidelity is not great, so you probably don't even know what she's saying. But I think it was the very act of celebrating her memory that, that made um, people come forward and be like, you know, my dad just died of cancer last year. It was like a six-month battle. Or, you know, I also lost my grandma, and it was really, you know. So it was less about the um, what she was saying specifically and more that I was this, like, spokesperson for memory and loss and um, tenderness that, that was that was encouraging people to kind of you know, come forward. It was less about like my story and more about the fact that I was having this experience that other people have obviously had other people have lost loved ones. So, um, I did a, an art installation, uh, in New Haven and I had like, a her, some of the pieces in her voice, like in a loop, you know, it was like a 15 minute loop or something and portraits of her and stuff. And then at the end of the experience in this room, there was a hospice log, um, which was, you know, if you felt moved to uh, record your own reckonings with family loss, you could write me a message. And, you know, I can't tell you how much I cried reading the responses that people privately shared with me. Um, I will never publish those, but it was, uh, yeah, it was more, it was more about being <clears throat> the spokesperson for loss rather than specifically what my grandma was saying in track four. Mm -hmm. That didn't matter so much. It was more the fact that um, I was having this uh, elegy. Thank you. How did you feel when you completed the album? Uh, well, it was probably the thing that took the least amount of time to write. And um, and then I did a few concerts in support of it. And, and I just had to stop. I think I did like two and it was just too much. Um, my parents came to one. My dad was, you know, her child. And um, yeah, just having people come up after the show telling me about their loss. It was, it was too much. Uh, it's, it's already too much when I play a show and there's like eight people that want to talk to me at once after and be like, Hey man, great show. Cause you know, it's like, I, I can't be an octagon. I'm not, you know, like the many faces of Shiva or whatever. I'm one person. So uh, already that's kind of over stimulating, but then to have this extra layer on top of people wanting to, um, kind of open the floodgates of like, you know, I was crying through your concert and, mm -hmm. you know, my dad and it's just, yeah, it was, so I had to kind of stop, um, 
uh, which is why I did the art installation because I didn't have to physically be in the room. Um, uh, but um, I did feel, um, uh, if I can co- cool off from the heart of the thing, uh, from a, from a sonic perspective, I did feel I was I was inching closer to what I'd always wanted, which was more of a Morton Feldman experience and less of a Stockhausen experience. I I, I always prided composers like Morton Feldman who, um, from the sheer prowess of their composing, uh, the performers could read the sheet of paper and produce a perfect sonic situation, be in total harmony with each other, no editing, no fluff, and, and it was just this perfect, pristine acoustic situation. And Avia was, at that time, uh, the closest I'd come to some sort of splat there it is acoustic because i was using a lot of uh, violin and organ um so i was satisfied uh that i'd sort of gone off the laptop to some degree and trusted the uh, the acoustic uh um presentation to kind of be enough and that was what led me to write uh the last two records uh devil knows how and making and then unmaking um because i continue to want this moment where it doesn't have to be chopped up with a laptop or put through a filter or whatever it can just it's just a a perfect acoustic representation and it doesn't need um anything else so uh i I, you know i i grew up fiddling on the computer and i will continue to think that way about sound i think you know regina specter still plays piano you know radiohead still play guitar i think what you start with you stick to to some degree but i will always be chasing this kind of um perfect acoustic sort of thing you know i i really love uh the recordings of like david monroe the early gothic stuff or obviously lena turbifil who was just singing you know in the in her home and a folklorist came by with a field recorder and got her you know so um that's important to me um but uh, I, I wonder what Lena would have done in the 21st century if she would have gotten a bit of garage band and auto-tuned her. Who knows? You, just, you can speculate, you know, or would she have yeah. been uh, some sort of, you know, old-timey brat with like a, a feathered hat and, a, you know, bad dress with puff sleeves and been super old-timey about it, you know? Who knows? Yeah. Um, it, it feels like there's a bit of a tension between uh, earlier you described what you're doing sort of as a collagist and then also this kind of pure acoustic performance. Do you see a tension? Is there a tension there or is that a time. misperception? Yeah, big time. I mean, you know, we're, we're, you know, it's a big joke because like Dolly Parton is more of an electronic musician than I'll ever be. She's got like 80 tracks, auto-tune, reverb, you know. 13 producers, two mixing engineers and a mastering engineer and this giant studio. So, you know, to, to that, um, end or, you know, um, Kenny Chesney or something, you know, they're more electronic than I'll ever be. So the gear doesn't matter, but, uh, yeah, the, uh, the assemblage of, um, things in a collaged way is, uh, something I'd like to get away from. The, the problem is, is that, uh, recording is so expensive and, uh, in part it's so expensive because, the internet exists, and so um, it's easy to uh, email parts back and forth. Uh, and in order to get a certain amount of people in a room at a certain time for a certain length of time, not only to record but to rehearse the thing, 
um, people know that that's a rarity, and so they can charge a premium. Mm. Um, I think I heard Matmos say 20 years ago that um, they don't record full operas with full ensembles anymore. Now, that might not be true. Maybe in the last 20 years that someone has come along and done that and defied them, but uh, I remember them saying in about 2001 that um, full orchestral ensemble recordings of complete operas don't happen in studios anymore. They have to be performed live at Carnegie Hall and taped, and then they put the live recording out as though it's studio. But I don't think that they get um, full opera people in the studio anymore, the entire assemblage of humans. Mm, that's um, interesting. So, you know, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I would, I don't, well, I don't want to say I'd never make something that large. I would love to, but, you know, uh, it, it, uh, <clears throat> collaging is a cost-effective way of making an album. And, mm. uh, yeah, there's a tension there, but, um, you know, I'm not uh, animal collective, so I don't have deep pockets to just put right. anyone in the room I want to. Um, you know, I'm, I'm blessed that, that the people uh, that I want to work with will drop a file in the email, you know, uh, Scott Salter, Bradford Reed, uh, Thomas Brinkman. I mean, you know, people I really admire have dropped a file in the email. So, you know, it's more than you can ask for sometimes. Yeah. That's wonderful. How, how did, um, like for example, Thomas Brinkman, how did that come about? Hmm. Well, um, I really appreciate his, it's so austere that it's actually very emotional. I find his music is like, you know, it'll be like one kick sound for five minutes and then he'll add a snare and then maybe you'll get a wiggly synth right at the end. You know, it's, there's not a lot in his music, but yet, um, there's a lot of, uh, I, I feel a lot of emotion listening to his work and I don't listen to a lot of, um, instrumental music. I have to be really, I'm really picky, you know, it's like finesse, Morton Feldman, Thomas Brinkman, I don't know who else I would say. Maybe Nathan Salzberg. Um, and uh, Thomas, uh, I never explicitly asked him to collaborate. What I had had, um, we had emailed a couple of times, and then I had sent him a track that went out on a drone record I was making, and he did a version of it, uh, but I didn't ask him to do it. It was like a surprise gift, or he was intrigued to uh, try this, and, and it, I liked it enough that I wanted to put it out, but but the reason I even got in touch with him wasn't, wasn't from the Thomas Brinkman stuff, um, but, but the Esther Brinkman material, which um, Esther was his, his sister who had the, um, the butterfly disease or the brittle bone disease, where your bones are like glass, and she passed away, and so um, I remember reading an interview with him about um, how her bones would always uh, click or something, and uh, it, it was spooky to him, and, and when she passed away, he, he took her name and, and made some music using the voices of dead philosophers, um, you know, so similar sort of to Avia, uh, very different applications and for very different reasons, but um, it, was, it was the Esther Brinkman project that uh, really grabbed my heart. Musical memory, death, Good times, <laughs> but uh, seriously though, I mean, it was that that it was uh, he didn't make much under that alias, but uh, the the fact that he had uh, done that was, um, you know, obviously pretty in line with my ethos. Mm -hmm. So I uh, reached out. So you've started doing recordings clandestinely of your grandmother. Um, you were also recording other things at the time. 
Well, I was making my own records, certainly. Mm-hmm. But uh, not really actively field recording much. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, anything that was getting recorded was purpose-built for a record. I'm not uh, really one who, um, you know, there's there's a great many uh, plunderphonic musicians out there that just whatever gets looped into the mic is is fodder for, you know, being 20 minutes underneath. A, uh, it just doesn't really do it for me. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> But uh, the Fieldwork Archive uh, started because um, when I went to Elk Park the first time in 2020, I met Lena's daughter, who was still alive, uh, still lived on the property that her mom had grown up on, uh, Nikki. And um, it was it was more than just the fact that I got to record Nikki singing some of the songs Lena remembered. She remembered Lena singing. It was that Nikki reminded me so much of my grandmother. And so I felt like, I was like, oh, if my grandma was a singer, or really Nikki wasn't a singer, she just remembered songs. Like if my grandma remembered songs and and I recorded her, I think this is how it would have gone. And so um, she even said, she was like, honey, if I'd met your grandma, I'm sure we would have been best of friends. You know, I mean, she was really, it was like a, a parallel uh in a, in a pretty amazing way. And I also uh, met some other people while I went to North Carolina first time and, and recorded this gentleman that makes banjos and his wife and, and a few other people. So I had like a, a pocket full of recordings aside from Lena's daughter. And then I went to uh, York, England for four months. On COVID was sort of over uh, last summer. And so I got uh, invited to go for a few months to England um, and I had a lot of money saved up from, from COVID stuff. And I was just like, yeah, I want to travel and spend time in another country. That sounds great. So my friend had this two level house and I stayed in one level and, and I brought my recorder with me and, um, I thought, well, a lot of these ballads are English. So maybe the, these old British people might know something. And so I made more recordings in Britain. Um, and then, uh, finally moved down to North Carolina this spring I've I've come back north because both of my parents are pretty sick right now. They'll be fine, but I made the decision to come back. But anyway, you know, the point of going back down to North Carolina was to continue to make recordings, especially of Lena's family, but also of anyone who might know some songs. And, and I did that. And so as these recordings went from a pocket full to like an arm full to like a drawer full to like a shelf full to like a dresser full, um, I promised myself if I got like a good round number... I would uh, donate them somewhere or uh, deposit them or something. And so when I hit 200 recordings, um, I decided that uh, the nature of the project was was so uh, organic and breathing that it wouldn't make sense to just give them to um, a university because then I think there would be some sort of intern or um, student that would have to approve new entries or it would take time and and academia is under tremendous stress in today's world so i wanted it to be at my fingertips so i founded fieldwork-archive.com and uh you know deposited the 200 recordings that was in early august and at time of speaking what is it? The end of November. I've, I'm up to 374 mm. recordings. So uh, now that it's sat somewhere and people know where it is and can find it and know what it is and can see it, uh, 
they know what it is and can interact with it. So I've gotten a lot of um, interest in submissions and press and uh, interaction from it being kind of live in a static place uh, where people know what it looks like, how it's going to end up being. And then they, they sort of come forward and say, yeah, I've, I've got something I can contribute to that. Ah, so new entries or, or people wanting to make contributions are finding you at this point. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm still looking, but I'm getting a lot of people through the grapevine say, "That's great." you know, hey, I want to uh, add to this. Yeah. How do you look, if, if you mind I ask everybody. Okay. You know, uh, I might ask you at the end of this, you know, did your grandparents ever sing and what did they sing? Uh, I'll have to think about that. But uh, yeah, everybody. And I, I went to a square dance a few weeks ago and I'm, I'm friends with the gentleman who was the dance caller. So he made an announcement um, that I was there taping the musicians, but also looking for little non, non-singers, I call them, you know, not, not, music, not musicians per se, but someone who, you know, might know a song from their grandparents. And so the only thing I got aside from the musicians themselves was this woman um, came up and her dad had been a preacher. Uh, so he omitted a word from the, from the song, but it was, um, the froggy, he am a queer bird. He ain't got no tail on most hardly. He run and he yump and he lands on his where he ain't got no tail on most hardly. So I guess he wouldn't say the word rump but uh you know whatever uh you know and that's the only thing i got that night aside from the the fiddle players and whatever but but it counts i mean it's an organic you know um oral tradition memory that you know Mm -hmm. her dad always sang that song and you know covered covered his mouth at that certain part so you know it's charming and then um you know other people have come forward and 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 i mean at this point you know sometimes it's just that one song that somebody knows um but that's okay. I mean, you know, it's hard to do this work amidst TikTok and iPads and distractions, modern distractions, I call them. Um, but uh, but it's still out there. Mm-hmm. And even if it's just that one person singing that one little short weird song, well, uh, what's what was her name? Deb Deb Tyler. I mean, she'd never been in front of a microphone before. She'd never sung in her life. You know, she was not a singer. She made that perfectly clear. And uh, that's sort of, to me, the the virgin soil treat of like, no one has ever recorded this person singing and probably no one ever will again. But, you know, I've, I've gone there and celebrated that with them. And it's, yeah, it's um, obviously the collection contains people who are old time musicians and traditional singers that know a lot of songs. Judy Cook is someone who's slowly taking over the archive because she knows so many songs from her family. Uh, She also decided at some point to become a professional folk singer. Mm -hmm. Um, But it started singing with her, her mom and dad and sister uh, in the home. They were home singers. So uh, yeah, I I place an emphasis on what I call non singers or home singers. Uh, A lot of the people I talked to in Britain had never sung in front of anyone, you know? So uh, that to me is interesting, you know? Yeah. What's the experience of recording somebody who's never sung in front of anyone? What's that, what's that like for you? Um, I mean, if you make it clear that you're not after like a perfect, uh, well, I don't really even have to do that, I guess. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll say, like I asked you, you know, did your grandparents ever sing? And, you know, um, they can be self-conscious, but, uh, they'll be like, you know, oh, he always sang, um, I'm, I'll make something up, you know, he always sang home on the range, you know, like someone might say, 
and uh, and I'm sure you know that song. And I'll say, yeah, but but how did he do it? You know, what was his version of it? And you know, they'll be like, well, you know, he'd start home, home on the range where the deer and the antelope play, where seldom, you know. And by the second verse, they they are actually putting some sort of effort behind it. So you know, I don't think I actually have to do much other than say, you know, what well, what do you remember about that? How did that go? And and I think their desire to call up their memory of this loved one is enough to to propel them to kind of get over themselves. It's very rare that I have people be self-conscious. Um, you know, I, I talked to one of Lena's um, relatives for hours, and she couldn't remember Lena singing, which baffled me, because Lena was, according to everyone else, always singing. But Judy just couldn't call it up. And then we got, talked about the whole family. We got all the way down to Lena's sister-in-law's children, um... And they sang this one song when they were over Don't Sell Daddy Any More Whiskey. It's like a, an early country song. And she sang that, but first she said it. She was like, don't sell daddy any more whiskey, because I know they'll take him away. And I said, but what's the melody? And she laughed, and then she sang it. And she had a wonderful singing voice, you know. Don't sell daddy any more whiskey, for I know they'll take him away. But once she got into the melody of it, it was lovely. So, you know, to just, just to get someone to... I, yeah, I don't even think there's a... I don't have to be that literal. I just have to, you know, point them in, in the direction of... What do you remember about that? How did that go? And they and they want to, you know, they want to get it right. They want to do that person, you know, honor. So they, they they get it right. And it's so it's never been like, so you're going to sing for me now, right? Because I think that would be probably a little more intimidating for people. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I've never had a problem. Yeah. It's interesting because as you're singing some of the songs that you've witnessed them singing, I'm thinking about how you've kind of taken on their memories or how their memories have become, you're embodying their memories. You have great memory for melody, apparently. And uh, now, now you're carrying it around in, inside you. What is that like? Hmm. Well, you can't hold on to everything or you'd be waterlogged. So I think, you know, one of the things I've been trying to do is, is do a lot of press, uh, not for the glory of the press, but I've done three articles now and I hope to keep doing them for various blogs of, uh, what I keep calling like a top five of the archive so far. Mm -hmm. Um, I think every blog has used that title, but you know, it's, it's an of the moment, um, auto ethnography sort of distillation for me of like what, um, what five songs, if I had to, you know, gun to my head, pick five, are speaking to me at this moment. And mm. it always changes. And so I've tried to uh, unload some of these uh, specific memories or associations as the collection grows. Because 400 songs is a lot of songs to remember. Mm -hmm. And I won't remember them all. Um, and that's just how being human works. Um, so as I tip into the thousands, hopefully, you know, I, it'll be even more damning, but, um, you know, Helen Flanders and, and I want to, um, I, I, I won't remember the, the quote, uh, perfectly, but, um, <clears throat> Helen Flanders worked out of Middlebury college. Uh, she lived in Vermont and was a field recorder, uh, in the around Dr. Halpert's era of the thirties and forties, Helen Hartness Flanders. And she said something to the effect of, uh, and this was back in the formation of, of the archive that she was building. So the number was smaller then, obviously. I think she ended up getting like 9,000 recordings, which is staggering. But at the time, she wrote this preface to a book, and it was like, um, 
the Helen Hartness Flanders collection contains some, I don't remember the number, 500 recordings, 60 broadsides, three lyric books or whatever. I don't remember the number, whatever. Sure. And then she goes on to say the individual experiences and interactions cannot be filed alongside them. Uh, the glow or the gloom to which one day ends and another begins cannot be stated in data. Uh, in the flurry of what is to be neglected at home, leaving the yard each morning with the notebook, recorder, pen in the front seat, just beyond the windshield is the day, always so electric with the unknown and always so different each time. I'm, I'm butchering that quote, but, but, but she's, what she's really getting at there is there is a, um, a, a distinct, tender, human, vital interaction that happens when you do this work, and it can't be... Uh, itemized into data because you would you would kill the um, uh, the essence of of a human interaction. I mean, it's just not possible to add the total nuance of, mm -hmm. of all of that. So one of the ways I've been trying to get around that is some sort of autoethnography, uh, sort of diary entries on blogs. You know, if a blog will let me be a co-author, I'll do a top five fieldwork archive um, thing. And, uh, and just, just talk about how I came to collect that song, who the person was, what, where they got the song, you know, and, 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 and it does, it's, it's different each time. And, and it took me several passes through the collection to figure out what I was actually going to try and bring one song to you that I hadn't spoken about in the press, because a lot of the ones that are dear to me, I've either outlined in lectures or, or I've put on a blog somewhere, but I tried to find, uh, one voice that, uh, was, um, not yet represented, so I chose Aniko's voice. Yeah, and um, I thank you for sending it to me beforehand so I could listen. It was a very beautiful recording. Um, could, could you tell us about it? Well, um, on my way down uh, to North Carolina in the spring, I stopped in Kieseltown, Virginia, and stayed with my friend Hannah. Uh, and then uh, Hannah went to Clifftop Festival uh, while I was coming back up. So I chose to stay in West Virginia with my friend Lisa Elmale, who is a terrific tintype photographer and documentary photographer. I think she's done a lot of work at the Mexico border on the wall. Uh, she's she's um, one of the most beautiful people I know. Hi, Lisa, if you're listening. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, she was like, yeah, just come on, you know. I don't have running water, but you know that you can stay the night, you know, I have a bed for you. Uh, and Lisa, uh, you know, in order to earn some sort of living, uh, hosts tintype or wet plate workshops in the summer when the conditions are favorable. So there were two women at the, uh, space when I showed up and one of them was Aniko and, uh, the other one actually lives in Sharon, Connecticut. So it was like a weird coincidence, but, um, Aniko lives in, New York State somewhere. I can't remember where. I think it's in the Hudson Valley. Um, it, it doesn't matter. But, uh, you know, they were both Yankees. I had come down to um, Lisa's workshop. And so here were us three Yankees, you know, at Lisa's house. I was the, the guest of honor. And then they, they were there, you know, for the workshop. So um, I introduced myself and I was telling them about my work. And uh, I said, you know, I talk to people whose families sing and I get them to sing what they can remember. And Aniko said, oh, well, last year my daughter asked me if my mom ever sang, so I asked my mom, and she did sing me a Hungarian lullaby. And I was like, 
hold that thought. Tell me that story when I get my recorder switched on and after I've had some dinner and we'll really be in business. So, um, you know, she tells the story at the beginning of this recording. Uh, and, and I, and I guess, um, her daughter had asked her, did your mom ever sing any Hungarian songs? Cause her mom was from Hungary. Her full name is Aniko Safran. She's Hungarian. And she did ask her mom and she sang, uh, Germa Kim, Oh, Alujal, which I think is maybe a Mozart piece. It's sort of unclear. It's, it's sometimes hard with the non-Anglican stuff, what the origin was, but, um, she, uh, she sang it for me. She sang it wonderfully too, you know, she has a good voice. And she also threatened to give me the recording she made of her mother. Uh, I haven't gotten that yet. Uh, I should probably bother her about that, but you know, she'd sort of done what I did with my grandma. She'd asked her mom if she sang it and the mom sang it, you know? Um, so, so, uh, yeah, I don't know why I haven't talked about Enico yet, uh, but that's that was, you know, I went to West Virginia and I was picturing fiddle and banjo music. Mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting a Hungarian Mozart lullaby, uh, and yet there it is. So, <laughs> um, uh, making a recording in West Virginia was sort of important for me too because uh, before I'd even done Avia, I was having a conversation with one of my my oldest friends, and. Uh, I was talking about how disappointed I was with electronic music and how exhausting it was to have to be woke all the time and super political, which I feel a lot of electronic music has become, um, you know, Holly Herndon selling herself for like NFTs and crypto and, uh, you know, more mother being super, super political. I mean, I think she does it right, but it's kind of exhausting to think about all the time. Um, so I was, I was like, yeah, maybe I need to just, you know, fuck off the grid to West Virginia and like go to a farm or a little shack or something. It's basically what I finally did five years later and went to West Virginia and made some recordings. So, uh, you know, West Virginia has been kind of me and my friend Kara's, uh, joke because it was like, I'd said this years before I started my field work and, uh, it was almost like a, a sketch for an idea of, of how to turn away from electronic music. Mm. Uh, so to, to kind of manifest that it finally did happen, that I went to West Virginia was, uh, humorous to me. I mean, yeah, it's interesting to me that a, a place became linked to that idea for you. I think that's interesting. Yeah. And I mean, it was like a, you know, throwaway reference. It was just sure. kind of like a random state. I could have said Minnesota, but I didn't, you know, yeah. I said West Virginia. So, um, so, so it was like the prophecy was fulfilled by, you know, I, w- I would love to explore West Virginia and in, in find people who are residents there that could sing for me. Um, but I, I found this transient woman from New York State singing yeah. a Hungarian lullaby. That's lovely. Um, I've noticed on the archive, oftentimes you'll have the, you found the same song sung by multiple singers mm-hmm. and there's, there's variation to it. I'm curious, um, what do, what do you make of that? That when you, when you happen upon, um, various versions of the same song, what's your take on that? Um, well, I, I ripped that idea, uh, off completely from the Max Hunter website because mm-hmm. they, they list variants. Uh, and I think I did it more as a practical, if you're waiting through 375 songs and there's no kind of lodestar, you might be like, have I heard that song already? Didn't they, somebody else sing something about a frog or my nuts? You might just get lost. So I thought it would be helpful at the bottom of the page to be like, there are variants of this. And you did hear this song earlier in the collection. Um, but, um, 
the the CD I handed you in the lobby, I mean, is is uh, seventeen versions of Lambkin, which you know I'm I'm fascinated by the way a song will um, shift uh, through locality, time, or more importantly, misremembering, just human misremembering. I mean, uh, Judy Cook, the the woman I know that knows so many songs, knows that Froggy song that uh, Deb Tyler sang. But uh, Deb saying it, uh, he ain't got no tail on on most hardly. And Judy remembers it as, he ain't got no tail almost hardly. Mm. And it's probably down to someone's accent and what they thought they heard, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, little quirks like that. I mean, you know, if you collect stamps, you know, you look at the cancellation mark and you go, oh, that's sideways, you know, or whatever. So this is like, you know, it doesn't really matter, but it's, I'm looking at like the, the ink where the ink was, <gasps> that's on sideways, you know? So it's, <laughs> yeah. Um, it doesn't, uh, it's the same song and, and, and it, and it might just have been up to what the singer remembers that day. I find myself substituting words when I sing ballads. Um, my brain just does it, you know? Um, like, let me kiss George's pale cold lips or let me kiss George's clay cold lips. Uh, you know, my brain sometimes just, you know, just ch choose a different word and you don't know why. Hmm. Uh, you know, Almeida Riddle did that a lot through the, through the time, you know, of the decades that she sang. She'd change phrases entirely because, you know, that would become this or I would become me or, you know, whatever. And it, it, I don't think that that's um, an active destruction of of a narrative i think it's just the way our brains work mm -hmm. yeah like i don't think it's an editorial decision when you're doing that it's like it's yeah. just what humans do yeah like when you say gruel when you're trying to say great and cool you know it's just it's like our brains just don't always the switchboard isn't always dialing you know murray hill 509 or whatever it's sometimes yeah does it raise questions about memory for you in general or or is it just flavor and interest i think it's just flavor i don't i don't think it's a specific like uh the, if the if the if the the carriage of the song is basically there they've remembered the song hmm. okay i'm curious how making these recordings is uh influencing your own work well with the devil knows how it it, it sure did you know i wanted i wanted the album to feel like a collection of field recordings rather than an album. Um, <clears throat> but, but for what I'm writing now, it, it almost isn't, it's become a separate endeavor and, um, it's, uh, it's exhausting to be a solo artist and, and like that, uh, eight people at the end of a show kind of thing I was explaining where you get off stage and, you know, people want, you know, um, your thoughts on, how you did. And I'm not a good judge of that. You know, uh, it's not up to me. So, uh, it's been a lot easier to talk about this project, uh, than my own work. Uh, so I'm, I, for the, for the, for this next thing I'm working on, I'm, I'm trying to keep them pretty separate. Mm. Um, some of the songs that I've collected, uh, are, are going to wind up on, on the record. Uh, I think, uh, one of my favorites is, uh, this hymn, that is very popular, but I was not aware because I'm just not of a Christian bent, but uh, just as I am, sung by Arthur Allgood, uh, which you can go look up on the... Um, it's, um, it's gorgeous, and I'm, I felt moved to sing that song. Uh, so uh, that'll probably 
wind up, uh, you know, so, so sometimes, you know, uh, you asked me about, um, how I become the, the carrier for these songs. It's not always about, I mean, certainly the, the experiences with the people are lovely, but sometimes you just find your new favorite melody. Sometimes somebody sings you something and it's your earworm for the next week. I don't know if you've experienced this listening to some of the songs in, um, the, the collection, but, but yeah, I just, I'm like humming some of these songs and they're short. A lot of the nature of it is fragmentary. People only remember a short verse or two, and, but that's enough to like get it in your head and you're like, you know, humming it. So yeah, sometimes it's just, it's just like a, it's a, a weird way to find your new favorite song, mm-hmm. you know, not, not turning to bleep, you know, top hundred downloads or Spotify year end list, but your next door neighbor. Mm-hmm. Who's in her eighties? Is that going to be your new favorite song? You know, it's 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 kind of fun that way. Yeah, that does sound fun. Well, I'd like to thank you, Derek, for spending time to talk with me. I really have enjoyed it. I'm flattered you were interested. <coughs> yeah.